Will you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew, chapter 26. And we'll be reading verses 57 through 66. 57 through 66. This is known, of course, as one of the chapters that leads up to of the crucifixion of our Lord, which is described in the next chapter, 27. But uh, already he has begun to suffer by being uh, betrayed by Judas in complete contrast to the devotion of Mary who has uh, poured out the beautiful anointing perfume and uh, Judas' betrayal is uh, one of the worst things that could have happened from a human point of view, although it was in God's plan. But in our chapter, he, in our section, he is going to be on trial before Caiaphas and the council, or otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. Before we read, let us pray. Our God and Father, as these words are open before us, we pray that your Holy Spirit will make clear what we are reading so that the words spoken from this page may be uh, written on our hearts, and even more deeply as they are proclaimed in the message that follows. So hear us, we ask, and send us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2021, a man named Ralph Blaine Smith was released from prison after serving wrongfully for 21 years. He had been sentenced to 67 years in prison for armed home invasion and for robbery, but 
Not only was there no evidence that he was actually guilty, there was no evidence that a crime had even actually been committed. So after 21 years, he's free from jail and can get out. The, the records showed that it had recently snowed on the occasion in which he was charged with breaking and entering, there were, but there were no footprints in the snow. A dog was barking when the police came, and neighbors said no dog had barked in the last hour. There were no tire tracks. And at his trial, people had given testimony under oath, but they had not spoken honestly and fully, and so he was condemned to 67 years in prison. But when they found out that there was not even a case that anything had ever happened, a prosecutor asked a judge to dismiss his case. And he was so glad, of course, to be out. I mention this because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, experienced this kind of injustice more than anyone else in all the history of the world. He was innocent and he was under trial in a human court, and there was no real evidence, even though he was accused of sedition and of blaspheming the temple, in fact, the crime hadn't taken place for Jesus either. He was ultimately accused of blaspheming God, and he hadn't done that, nor had anyone done it. He too was falsely convicted and sentenced not just to prison, but to death. And he was placed under an oath so that he would incriminate himself. And yet it is this very oath of the covenant that permits us to be completely set free, even though we're sinners. So we see here that the oath of the covenant was first of all imposed as a requirement of the law. It was imposed as a requirement of the law. Secondly, it compelled the testimony of the Son of Man. And thirdly, it resulted in a sentence of death. So as we think about the overall topic, the oath of the covenant, we can see that it was a requirement of the law. It compelled his testimony, and it resulted in a sentence of death. The oath of the covenant was a requirement of the law and imposed on Jesus. Now, there were two major parts to Jesus' trial. There was the ecclesiastical part and there was the civil part, the religious part and the civil part. The religious authorities hold their trial first and there are three phases of that trial. First, he's before Annas, the old or former high priest. Then he's before Caiaphas, the regular high priest. And then he's before Caiaphas again. There are also three stages to the civil trial, which followed. He first appeared before Pilate, then he went to Herod, and then he comes back to Pilate. So we're dealing with Jesus appearing before Caiaphas, the first trial before Caiaphas. It's only the Gospel of John that mentions the trial before Annas, who was the father-in-law of the current high priest. Now, Annas had been the high priest, but there were changes made by the Roman authorities, and so Caiaphas was now the high priest. They probably lived in the same palace. There was the high priest's palace in Jerusalem. So Annas very likely lived on one end, one wing, 
and Caiaphas in another wing, and there was a courtyard that kept all the wings together. The the whole palace was built around a kind of uh, courtyard. And that's where we know that uh, Peter was hanging out during the trial. Now, the part before Caiaphas and Annas was less formal than what happened after daybreak. Um, The 70-member Sanhedrin, or ruling council of the Jews, was looking for a way to convict Jesus. Now, they could give him a religious trial, but they couldn't sentence him to death. They didn't have that authority. But if they did sentence him to death and got the government to go along with it, then they would get to kill him, and that's what they want to do with Jesus. Twenty-three form a quorum from, of the 70-member Sanhedrin. It was considered a quorum. And probably they, weren't, they definitely were not all present because we know from the Gospel of Luke that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was not there, and he was a member of the ruling council. So here's this, they, they, and they, oh, the trial t- takes place during the night, like before 3 o'clock in the morning, but they have to have another trial after daybreak to make it legal because the Jewish law required you could not have trials during the night. But they did it anyway, and then they wanted to make it legal in the morning, so that's why there was a third trial before Caiaphas. So first they were by Annas, then they moved him across to Caiaphas, then they had to reconvene the council after daybreak and try him all over again. It was just a formality. But we're dealing now with the one in the middle of the night, which ended probably around 3 o'clock in the morning. Picture the amazing scene. Here is the great heavenly high priest, sinless and perfect, who is being tried by wicked earthly priests, earthly high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. He's deeply humiliated because he is the sinless one. And he's standing in front of these wicked rulers. And that makes his trial even worse. There's one commentator named William Hendrickson who describes the characters involved in Jesus' trial very memorably with three words for each one. And none of them are nice. He says it was greedy, serpent-like, vindictive Annas. And then there was rude, sly, hypocritical Caiaphas. And there was crafty, superstitious, self-seeking Pilate. And finally, the immoral, ambitious, superficial Herod, Antipas. These were the judges of the sinless Son of God. Now, witnesses were needed in order to bring a fitting charge to bring to Pilate. And they couldn't find any that would agree. The law required in the Old Testament, too, in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, that uh, no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one wicked witness. So they needed to get two that would agree. But nobody would agree. They'd accuse him of a crime, and, well, there wasn't anybody else that saw that one. Or they'd accuse him of another one. They were all making up lies. Of course, they're false witnesses. But they, they can't condemn him unless two agree. Well, finally, they, they think they got what they wanted. They, uh, they get two witnesses who at least agree that Jesus had said this, John 2, verses 19 to 21, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, he had said that. But the false witnesses misquoted it, took it out of context, twisted what Jesus said, because we know 
he was actually speaking of his own body when he said he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. He's going to die on the cross and rise again from the dead. We know that, having seen the bigger picture, having looked back, at, back after several centuries. But these people are twisting what he said and making it look as though he is an insurrectionist that wants to destroy the temple. And so it is that Caiaphas, the high priest, invokes the oath of the covenant. Here are all these lies and distortions of what Jesus said. They're lying through their teeth at, what, at who Jesus really is. And what does the Holy Son of God do? He's absolutely silent. He doesn't say a word. Against all their criticism, against all these terrible things they're saying about him, he doesn't say one thing. In fact, he could have answered this last charge about destroying the temple in three days and rebuilding it. He could have straightened it out easily. He could have pointed out, you misinterpreted what I said. He could have said, you need to know what I really meant. But he doesn't say anything. He is completely silent. He doesn't say anything. And the high priest is really frustrated. He wants Jesus to speak so he can use his own words to incriminate him and send him to his death. That would make it easy for the, for the Caiaphas and, and the Sanhedrin, the, town, the, the, the uh, religious council. So he's completely frustrated because Jesus remains absolutely silent and very exasperated. Caiaphas, it says, finally rises from his seat and exclaims, don't you answer? What are these men testifying against you? Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't answer at all. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, and especially of Isaiah 53, verse 7. You know what it says, don't you? He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He didn't say anything. Already he's suffering intensely under this farce of a trial. And that's when Caiaphas makes his move. Whether he planned it ahead before they even got there, I don't know. We don't know about that. It was definitely under the providence of God that he came up with what he came up with. Caiaphas decided to force Jesus to incriminate himself by placing him under the oath of the covenant. That's what he says in verse 63. I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now technically, Caiaphas has the law on his side. There was a provision in the Old Testament law that permitted someone to be put under the oath of the covenant. And oaths were needed, of course, because we live in a world of liars, don't we? And a lot of people take oaths on trivial matters. They'll say, swear to God, when they're not, there's nothing worth swearing about. But he makes him swear an oath. The Old Testament said, Leviticus 5, verse 1, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, 
whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, the Old Testament law said, if you are charged in a court setting to say something, to testify, then you have to do it. You can't plead the Fifth Amendment in that case, if the Fifth Amendment had existed then. Failure to give testimony would make you guilty of preventing justice from being carried out. So now, Caiaphas makes sure that Jesus is now required by law to speak. Well, he's been silent so far. Will he say anything? Is he going to? Of course, he does at last. And that brings us to the testimony of the Son of Man. He does speak at last. Of course, he identifies himself through this. We'll get to that. It isn't as though nobody knew or that he had never said anything about himself so far. He had often referred to himself as the Son of Man. You know how it is. And this kind of reminds me of that, where they, he wants him to say who he is. You're in school, and the teacher has announced at the beginning of the semester there will be a term paper, and it is due on such and such a date. He keeps repeating it, reminding you over and over, the term paper is coming. And you heard it. But now it's tomorrow. It's due. And so he says, that paper is due. Don't act like you never heard it. You heard it long before. It's kind of like that with Caiaphas. It was known. Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah to the Samaritan woman. He had defended the children who were running through the temples, shouting Hosanna in, in the temple. He had defended them when they were criticized by the authorities. He had taught publicly that he is the judge of all men. Think about the, the uh, parable he told about the, the Son of Man sitting on his throne of judgment and on the right are the, the sheep and the left are the goats. And uh, he had told his disciples repeatedly that he would suffer and die. In fact, I think almost all the Gospels report at least three times when he said the Son of Man must suffer and die and then rise again. So it wasn't news. It wasn't new news. It was news, but not new news. But now Jesus believes, and rightly, that it's time to make a public testimony before the authorities about himself. And it's kind of interesting, at the very moment when Caiaphas thinks he's got Jesus in a trap, at that very moment, forcing him to incriminate himself, at that very moment, in God's plan, Jesus reveals himself openly as the Son of God. And so his answer is, you said it. Yes, you said it. But he expands on his answer and gives a very clear warning that we all need to pay attention to. It's an amazing claim. He says it. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's verse 64 of our passage. What is Jesus saying? He is claiming to be God's own son. He's not just a human Messiah. He is not just the deliverer that the Jews had hoped would deliver them from Roman bondage. But he is the divine son of man 
who sits at God's right hand. Remember Psalm 110, verse 4? This great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And behind the words that Jesus speaks here in verse 64 are words spoken in the famous vision of Daniel. You may want to look there. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and, or 9 and 10, and then 13 and 14. Chapter, 9, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. There it describes how the, the Redeemer will come. And Daniel sees in his vision the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. And it says his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Make you think about Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verses 9 and 10. The court sat in judgment. The Ancient of Days is the great judge. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is a much greater court than the court of Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin. It is the court of heaven itself. And then he sees more. And if you look at verses 13 and 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." What did Jesus say? From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He is very clearly identifying himself with this great personage in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. Who is this amazing personage that we see in Daniel 7 and in our chapter? He is both human and divine. One like a son of man. He is distinguished from God, and yet he has the authority of God. He is like a son of man. He is greater than any earthly authority. Nebuchadnezzar, Caiaphas, Caesar, or any head of state today. He is greater than Biden, or Xi, or Putin, or anyone else that rules in our world today. He's not just an Israelite. He's not a mere angel. No mere human can rule the entire world forever, as Daniel promised. But Jesus here claims that he is this person who will reign forever and ever. And so he says to Caiaphas, when he's put under the oath of the covenant, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here is this great title, Son of Man, which Jesus so often used in the Gospels concerning himself. In fact, in this light, the phrase, the title, Son of Man, 
actually does not stress his human nature, even though he was fully human. It actually stresses his divine nature. Because this person is like the Son of Man, but he is God. When Daniel sees the vision, this person is like a Son of Man, but he is the Son of Man, which makes him the Messiah, which makes him equal to God. So wherever you see this title, you can see this is the Messiah, the very Son of the living God, the Son of the Ancient of Days. So it turns out this is quite a powerful warning to wicked Caiaphas. Anybody that's going to presume to sit as a judge over the Lord Jesus. Because he says you'll see him coming on the right hand of power. The complete fulfillment of this, of course, is described in Revelation 19. You can turn to this in chapter Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. I won't read it all. But if you glance at that passage, you can see that Jesus is the rider on the white horse, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then you can see at the end of it, at the end of that reading, the grand conclusion of the Hallelujah Chorus. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. So what's Jesus saying in verse 64? Caiaphas, you put me under the oath of the covenant. I take the oath. I respond. You adjure me by the living God. All right, I am coming and you will be called to account before me. One day. That's what Jesus is actually saying to Caiaphas. And so will we. Caiaphas posed as a judge. How often do we do the same? If we fail to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King, when we give ourselves a pass on a commandment or two, or when his name is dishonored and we could speak up but remain silent, Jesus gave the good testimony the good confession. But how often do we keep silent and quiet? And that brings us to this last thing. There is here also a sentence of death that is the result of Jesus taking the oath of the covenant and being put under it by Caiaphas. Caiaphas has been looking for the opportunity he wanted to convict Jesus, and he has found it, he thinks, now that Jesus has spoken. Of course, secretly... We all know Caiaphas is thrilled. But he puts on a show. What does he do? It tells us. He tears his robes and declares, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. Caiaphas pretends to be offended that a mere human has claimed to be God's own son, the royal Christ. And so Caiaphas takes a vote. He says to everybody there, this whole Sanhedrin, however many were there, what is your judgment? And the vote is unanimous, except for the one who is absent, who we know is, Judas, or is uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Their vote is, to the man, he deserves death. Of course, if Jesus was lying, then he was no more than a rabbi. Then he was no more than a competitor for the crowds that follow religious leaders. And then he would deserve death. That was the law for the blasphemer. 
death if you blasphemed. Leviticus 24, 10 to 23 describes how that law worked. But Jesus has been determined to come to this hour because he had us in mind. He had you in mind when he came to this hour. The irony is that Jesus will be crucified because he told the truth. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. And he doesn't try to cover that up. He doesn't try to protect himself because he is laying down his life for us. He will endure cruel beatings. Notice how they slapped him afterwards. He will endure the cross. He already had struggled in the garden. There he said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. He said to his disciples, remain here and watch with me. But we know that even those who were nearest and closest to him uh, fell asleep. And yet Jesus' resolve does not change. What does he say in verse 39? We didn't read that now, but when he's in the garden, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He willingly will go to the cross. So here's a deep agony in Jesus in the garden. And in the suffering and the shame during the trial before Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin. Here is the agony of being forsaken by God. That will happen. But he will do what has been determined in the great covenant of redemption. And that's why I called it the oath of the covenant. What's the covenant of redemption? This is a covenant that takes place in eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When together they agree that they will redeem the people of God who will fall into sin. And then they agree that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, will be the one who will come to this earth and lay down his life for us. He will take upon himself human flesh while remaining holy God. And so he keeps his oath. It is the oath of the covenant before a human court. And so he says, you said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. By this oath, Jesus is a full and complete Savior. And so it is that the pastor who wrote the book of Hebrews, which is kind of a, a, a sermon-like letter, refers to the oath that God made to Abraham, chapter 6, verse 13 of Hebrews. And he goes on to say that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he introduced a better hope than anything the earthly priesthood could ever have offered. The earthly high priest Caiaphas, even if he had not been corrupt, could never do what our great heavenly high priest Jesus could do. Because Jesus, it says in Hebrews, is the guarantor of a better covenant. And then chapter 7 of Hebrews verse 20 says, and it was not without an oath. And that is why, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7, 28. So people of God gathered here tonight in worship here is a wonderful, reassuring truth. The one who had agreed from all eternity to come into the world actually confirms 
the covenant of redemption, when Caiaphas puts him under the oath of the covenant and says, yes, you have said so, essentially, I am the Son of God. Henceforth, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. So consider, people of God, the three options that C.S. Lewis became famous for. Jesus made his claims. And C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. The world thought he was a lunatic. Caiaphas thought he was a liar. But he claims to be the Lord. He made the good confession before Pontius Pilate and also before Caiaphas. So brother and sister, be thankful. Children, be glad. He is the Lord. Jesus didn't shrink from declaring that He is the Messiah, the Christ, the glorious Son of Man. So that when you and I want to be quiet about Him, He is no less the Son of Man. He swore an oath, the oath of the covenant. He is the fountain of all our hope, the sure anchor for our souls. So can we do any less than speak of Him purposefully, giving clear testimony that He is the Christ? He gave the good confession. Now I know our words will never amount to what He did and said. And yet our testimony must also be clear. He is the very Son of God. This is the testimony of Jesus to which we simply bespeak simply by the act of assembling for worship. This is our testimony when we let our families know the hope that is within us. This is our testimony at work or in school or in the marketplace when we speak of this Savior or at a church meeting. He is coming on the clouds of heaven. And He is now seated at God's right hand. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have such a mighty and powerful Savior, a glorious Savior, that will one day be coming in the clouds of heaven when the last trumpet sounds and when we see that great kingdom coming about when the dead will be raised and all those in Christ will be incorruptible and perfect. We thank you that we may look forward to that day. And we pray that as we may be in some awe because of the fact that he is the judge of all the earth, we thank you that he is also our Savior because he took the oath of the covenant and he will keep his promise. He will always be our faithful Savior, the very Son of Man. May we trust him then and rest in his promise. For we pray in Jesus' name.